climate crisis, well, it isn't going anywhere. And it's liable to get worse simply by virtue of emissions that have already happened. While politicians are increasingly alive to the issue, what's clear is that a market-based response is inadequate to avoid warming of even two degrees this century, creating unthinkable devastation. And that's before we talk about the 2100s. So what other kinds of solution are there? One is the idea of allowing a large part of our planet to simply return to nature. I spoke to Troy Vitesse and Drew Pendergrass about their new book, Half Earth Socialism, which proposes radical rewilding, veganism and ultra-low energy consumption as the only way to address climate warming, mass species extinction and future pandemics. Troy and Drew, thanks for joining me on Navarra FM today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, before we talk about the ideas in Half-Earth Socialism, can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and your, your personal backgrounds? I'm an environmental historian. Uh, I'm Canadian, educated in the US and Britain. I'm currently uh, living in Florence, where I'm a postdoc at the European Union Institute. And I study neoliberal uh, environmental thought. And working on that led me to think more seriously about what eco-socialist thought should be like to uh, solve the problems that we're facing. Andrew, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I am currently a PhD student in environmental engineering. I work on uh, large supercomputer models of the environment and try and fuse those models and the physics and chemistry we know about the environment with observations we have from satellites and aircraft and surface observations. And then, um, so I'm very interested in this sort of modeling uh, and understanding the entire environment and how it works together. Uh, and um, yeah, met Troy um, through reading some of his environmental work in New Left Review. And we got to talking and uh, ended up having an interesting collaboration across disciplines. And what's your background? Do you both come out of, you know, green direct action activism? Are you both Marxists? You know, when did you start sort of formulating these ideas and, and from what tradition? I am a Marxist. I'm not sure. Well, you know, you've read the book and you can see, I think it's a weird blend of Marxism. If anything, I quite like Otto Neurath's work and maybe I'm best described as a Neuratian but that doesn't perhaps tell you people very much. And we can get more into Neurath during this conversation. But um, I was just reading widely on the environment and doing lots of book reviews. So it forced me to read things I probably wouldn't have read otherwise. And I began to see just how the environmental crisis uh, took many forms. Uh, but people were talking about these problems separately rather than together. And I began to really try to think about what does it look like to talk about extinction, climate change, renewable energy, geoengineering, all in one frame. Uh, in terms of my role in the in terms of environmental activism, I have to admit I'm not a very good activist. I work mainly as a uh, an academic. Um, and that's and I, but I really come to this problem from studying neoliberalism, I would say, thinking very hard about how neoliberals uh, operate, how they organize and how they have changed the world it has influenced my socialism quite a bit. Andrew? 
Yeah, so I, I'm active on uh, the U.S. left, uh, started with Bernie Sanders, and I'm involved in the eco-socialism uh, working group in uh, Democratic Socialists of America. But the book is pretty distinct from that. It's a utopian book. It's designed to kind of help us rethink uh, and think forward uh, about positive solutions to the climate crisis rather than reacting to things like new fossil fuel infrastructure. So let's move to the book. Um, it's called Half-Earth Socialism, which I presume is a homage to Edward Wilson's Pulitzer-winning Half-Earth. Can you sort of explain what Half-Earth is, what Half-Earth Socialism is, and what the difference is precisely? Yes, and when I wrote the original essay that inspired the book, I didn't really have a name for what this uh, program would be, and half of socialism became a shorthand as we were writing it, and I think it's important because I want to emphasize that the environmental crisis is massive, it contains many facets, and it's not merely uh, the climate crisis. Uh, we also want to stress that socialists should care about the sixth extinction, the mass extinction that's happening right now, and the solutions that be necessary to stop that. And that's, that's why we call it half-earth socialism. And the half-earth is this idea that the only way to stop uh, mass extinctions is to protect more land uh, from development. And right now about 15% of land is protected in parks, and that number needs to more than triple to 50%, and that would protect more species from going extinct. So instead of having an extinction rate of 50% by the end of the century, it would be more like 15%, which is still bad, but at least not as bad to make it one of the largest extinction events of all time. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you have uh, lots of new nature parks while also having space for uh, human flourishing and you know, renewable energy and everything else? And that's what we try to explain in the book. And it's half for socialists because we don't think that E.O. Wilson and other conservationists have the, the means to achieve their aims because they are too conservative. They depend on uh, philanthropists and rich people to, to help realize their, their dreams, which simply won't work, and they uh, don't have a way to understand the crisis, and they tend to fall back to Malthusian explanations, which are deeply troubling. Yeah, just kind of building on what Troy said, um, conservationism is uh, a program with a very problematic history. Um, there are, we talk at length in the book about um, some pretty nasty South African conservationists. Um, so it's clear that uh, any sort of socialist program to protect the environment has to not follow those uh, patterns in the past. But that does not mean that the environment does not matter and biodiversity does not matter. It's, it's important from a human perspective because biodiversity is what keeps us alive. It's what keeps our food going. It's what keeps our ecosystems functioning properly. There's a term in science that ecosystem services, which is maybe a very uh, uh, technical or technocratic way of looking at it, but the ecosystems are doing enormous services to keep us alive. So uh, that it's not an option to to let this extinction go on and, and protecting land is the way to, to solve that. So is it fair to say that you have a similar objective to E.O. Wilson, which is to say you'd like to see half the planet given over to nature, but you, you, you disagree about how to get there, which is where the socialism bit comes from. You know, he, he's right in terms of what he wants to achieve. It's just the means by which he wishes to achieve it means it's impossible. Is that a fair assessment of your critique? That's a big part of it. So we agree that the only way to stop the mass extinction event is to preserve more uh, of the Earth uh, through having more parks. I mean, what I would also say is that that's not the only goal of 
half of socialism. We also talk about again natural geoengineering. We talk about the, having space for renewables and and worrying about zoonotic disease and all these other things as well. Um, and I would also stress that. You know, I, our book will be criticized for having, I think, any kind of favorable reaction to Wilson. Wilson is a deeply uh, contradictory character. I mean, he is flawed in many respects. I mean, after we finished the book, uh, there was that news story that broke about his connections with um, you know, race scientists in, in, uh, in Canada and all that, and really other ugly stuff. And we want to be clear that you know, we are not sociobiologists. And there's been plenty of critiques of Wilson, but I would say that his work on um, biogeography, which is the relationship between land, area, and biodiversity, has withstood the test of time. And therefore, if you really are serious about stopping the sixth extinction, you need to preserve more land. And the question is, what is the political economy that allows that to happen? And how does that relate to everything else? And he doesn't answer that well. And we're trying to build a, a socialist critique and a socialist framework to to understand that and, and, and enact that. Yeah, and to, to build on what that socialist might uh, version of Half-Earth might look like, it would involve extensive democracy. You can't be imposing this sort of uh, conservationist scheme on high onto people. There needs to be, uh, you know, some form of democratic framework here. And then also uh, another distinction is that um, one thing that we point out in the book is that uh, Biodiversity is often higher on indigenous managed land than on other kinds of land. And so what does conservation look like? It doesn't need to look like what it's looked like in the past. There are much more liberatory, democratic ways of, of protecting nature and ensuring the flourishing of non-human life as well as human life. We'll talk about, you know, your approach towards vegetarianism and energy production, consumption and so on. But I think it's probably important to stick with this for a moment. You know, some of the detail you give as to what a difference um, mass rewilding would, would lead to is quite incredible. So, for instance, you know, the extent to which whales act as carbon sinks, um, I think would be lost on on most people. I certainly wasn't familiar with that until I think really the last six to 12 months. Can you just detail again some, some of that in terms of just how much of a difference, for instance, if we saw a return of the kind of whale populations we saw 100, 150 years ago, how analogous is that to reforestation? Because in the popular imagination, particularly since COP last year, we, we talk about a quote-unquote natural solution to moving towards net zero. But we can be a little bit more imaginative, can't we? Yeah, definitely. It's much more than forests. Um, one thing to know is that soils contain a huge amount of carbon, more than the trees do. So a healthy soil is taking up carbon. So things like prairies, you know, in the American Midwest, uh, where you might have bison herds or something, they don't look like the vision of a carbon sink, but they suck up huge amounts of carbon. The topsoils can be really, really thick and control a lot of that carbon. Whale falls. Yeah, this is a major part of what's uh, called the biotic pump in the ocean. So pumping a carbon literally down to the bottom of the ocean and keeping it there. Things like kelp forests in the oceans and mangrove forests all are absorbing this carbon. And I'll say that there's a, there is a scheme that we talk about in the book that's very big in climate models called biofuels uh, with carbon capture and storage. BEX, uh, the idea is you have a tree plantation, the trees suck up carbon, you burn the trees for electricity, you capture the carbon, and then you bury it underground. And the idea is this is negative emissions because you're capturing this carbon. 
Uh, and this is often what's used to make these um, basically these high resource consumption but low climate change scenarios in these IPCC models. Um, it's very implausible. You'd need land the size of India or more um, to keep to the 1.5 degree warming scenario. Uh, and it may not even work because the soils might start emitting if they're not happy, if there's not a, a happy biosphere going. So it's, um, it's important to have a functioning biosphere in terms of the carbon cycle. Just to build on that, I mean, there were plenty of studies showing how biodiverse forests uh, accumulate more carbon than tree plantations. And with the becks, I mean, these will be plantations. And the thing is, if you have becks without having um, reforms to what people are eating, as in abolishing the uh, animal uh, livestock industry, then you're going to be building these things in biodiverse places. You're going to be replacing biodiverse forests forests with plantations, and that would actually probably release more carbon, which is a huge problem. But uh, I, I like that Drew started with soil, and I think when we're talking about natural carbon uh, solutions and, and, and questions of uh, biological and ecological solutions to this problem, it's all about the unsexy stuff. So, uh, you know, soil microbes matter. I would say it's not just whales, but fish are a huge part of the carbon cycle. I mean, people like talking about big predators that say like, you know, tigers or whatever, but also herbivores are incredibly important, like otters are important, like all these um, creatures, they're part of this, this larger uh, carbon cycle that includes, you know, living, living things. And we have to, we shouldn't be surprised that we have destroyed so much of biodiversity as in like the amount of uh, biomass for humans and for livestock is just so much greater than for wild animals. We shouldn't be surprised that the carbon capacity of these systems is much less and can be improved upon. Isn't it something like of, of all the biomass on our planet amongst mammals, wild mammals are only like four or five percent, is that correct? Yes, it's about a third humans, two thirds livestock and a, only a few percent for, uh, for wild animals. I mean, in like all, pets alone outweigh wild mammals. Wow, that is an extraordinary statistic. Uh, besides rewilding, so, uh, and we will return to that, sort of giving over 50% of the planet to, like you say, rainforest, mangrove, um, prairie, etc. Uh, what does energy consumption look like? So right now, you know, we have a fossil fuel based energy system. Uh, fossil fuels are really remarkable. You can think of them as concentrated sunlight. Uh, you know, millions of years ago, the sun came down, plants grew, animals were doing their thing, they die, they get pushed underground, they get crushed, and you get this carbon that you can like move around, you can burn it whenever you want. Uh, it has really concentrated energy. Uh, you're exploiting millions of years of solar power. If you move to a renewable system where you have a flow of energy that's uh, more intermittent, things like solar, wind, uh, you need more land to capture that. Now, for solar and wind, that's not a super big deal. Uh, but um, for other forms of renewable energy like biofuels, you need a very large amount of land. Um, so um, there's a theorist that we use in the book, Vaclav Schmiel, who writes that basically if you were to convert in Great Britain the uh, energy system over to fully renewable without doing any sort of electrification, right, where you're putting like cars off the road and replacing it with public transit, that sort of thing, just replacing what you have right now, then you need a lot of biofuels because a lot of the uh, power consumption is off the electrical grid. Uh, and then you end up having to cover two thirds of Britain with um, basically energy infrastructure, energy crops. Very bad, very inefficient, 
So obviously the solution is a combination of getting things onto the electrical grid, basically a lot of industry and transportation, getting rid of this internal combustion sort of system, putting it onto the electrical grid so we can use those better renewable sources. Um, but it also may be a matter of um, seriously thinking about energy use cuts. So this could be a matter of like retrofitting buildings to have better insulation so you don't need to spend as much on heating. Uh, but it also means taking seriously the idea of um, of moving to a lower energy lifestyle. There are a couple of reasons to do this. One is to reduce pressure on the grid, which will have a lot more energy coming into it. And the other is that those solar panels have to be made out of stuff that has to be mined. And that's a very serious thing that socialists will have to think about is this resource footprint. Theo Rio Francos thinks very well about this sort of thing uh, and then plenty of others as well. Sort of the basis of our thinking here is that uh, in the in the West, very developed world, energy consumption is very, very high. In much of the world, there's not much energy consumption at all. So there needs to be some amount of leveling. But, but just to clarify, I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar with the numbers precisely in the book. Towards the end, you you sort of give this this piece of speculative fiction, which is a, an homage to William Morris, News from Nowhere. Somebody wakes up. We'll, we'll talk about that a bit later on. They wake up and they're, you know, they're, they're jetted several decades into the future. And there are these live debates about energy consumption, which are, are massively lower than what they would be today. Um, and I mean, if I'm talking about the UK, and I, please correct me if I'm wrong, I think in the UK, the average person uses around three constant kilowatts, which is to say the average person is basically walking around and a, a kettle is permanently on. Um, so that's obviously the lights are in this room, we're on a computer, whether you drive from A to B, etc., etc. So the UK is actually pretty good by, by global standards, but then obviously if you look at the US, you look at Canada, you look at Australia, you look at Saudi Arabia, massively, massively higher. And from what I could make out, you guys are talking about a an enormous reduction in energy consumption. You know, Britain is already quite low because, you know, arguably we don't manufacture very much. And of course, we could be much lower. So for instance, warming in terms of household energy consumption, just keeping a room warm actually in this country is a lot more energy than what we're using for all our, our appliances and so on. I think it's three to four times as much in winter. Okay, so a lot of that can be done through insulation, but somewhere like the US, California or Saudi Arabia, where people, if anything, are going to consume more in the future with warmer climates, you know, quote unquote, need for air, air conditioning, air cooling systems. It's a big ask, isn't it? Can you can you just sort of outline how much energy people would have to cut in some of these places? Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, having read uh, your book again recently, because you are optimistic about solar costs going down and solar energy being pretty much limitless. And in the book, we are more pessimistic. I mean, we're saying that the power density for solar is not going to increase to the degree that it will be uh, comparable to fossil fuels, at least not anytime soon, although there are some second generation solar panels coming online probably in the next decade or so. But, but that, uh, taking that aside, um, you know, solar is other issues that Drew was talking about, such as you know, mining and um, you know, also just the reliability as you're not going to have the sun shining all the time. So there's all these other issues we have to deal with. And one can also say that the, the less we have to replace, the, e the faster we can get to 100% renewables, right? If you're trying to replace a really high 
energy using society is going to take longer. And I mean, and we're just not convinced that it's going to be easy to have 100% renewables at high rates of use. So we're talking before about what is the energy use in different countries, and it's about you know, 12,000 watts in Canada or the US, and it's only about 1,000 watts per person in India. And Europe, and I, I believe including Britain, would be around five or 6,000 watts. So the, and there is this Swiss Institute that talks about the 2,000 watt societies, so everyone emerging at 2%, uh, 2,000 watts. So, the, the poorest will increase or double the consumption, the rich will go down. So, and that I think is good because too much of environmentalism tends to be, you know, people in the global north don't change very much and people in the global south have to do without or can never aspire to comparable living standards and we are against that. And you're, you're definitely right. This is, as you put it, a big ask. I mean, our, the whole book is... Um, demanding a lot from people to ask people to give up meat i mean to ask people to give up markets to ask people to give up you know capitalism these are all big things we're asking and we're trying to kind of start with basics i mean again i was saying i i, I approach this as a as a neoliberal would as in like what should socialism be in an era when socialism has failed you know, 30 years ago, and it's not clear what socialism is in the future. And we should not think, you know, what is plausible today in terms of solutions, like what seems like a reform we can achieve, but something that, like a new society that will break with previous societies and will solve problems that we think need to be solved on a different basis. I mean, you need to imagine the neoliberal project took 50 years before they succeeded. And I think, you know, if you were a neoliberal in the 1940s, you know, you would have been laughed at given that everyone thought planning was important and, and so forth. So uh, we approach it on, on these terms. So you're, you're definitely right. Uh, we are demanding a big change, but the 2000 watt uh, society would require people to live in passive homes, which you know quite a bit about, uh, to not fly too much, probably not have a car, to, um, to you know, take public transportation, to you know, not eat meat. And these are all ways to get down to it, and it is possible. Uh, but it's not a, a socialism of total abundance. I mean, let me let me clarify. So the, the numbers that I'm familiar with, basically between now and 2050, you're looking at a doubling of global energy consumption. Uh, that's because we're going to add two, two and a half billion people to the planet's population, let's say two billion. Um, and you're getting obviously rising energy demand in much of the global south. What we've seen already in the global north, and again, primarily because of the relocation of manufacturing, but not, in, not entirely, is um, uh, effectively a, a ceiling on energy consumption. You see this most obviously in the European Union and Britain, but you also see it a little bit in the US. So, I, I mean, I like I said, when I say it's a big ask, it's not just you're not asking people to not consume more energy because we, we already appear to have reached that point. For instance, in Britain, I mean, we've seen significant drops since the early 2000s. And I, I really don't want to be under any illusions about that. That's overwhelmingly because of the relocation of manufacturing, but it's also because of lifestyle changes and, you know, we've got LEDs rather than older lights. We've seen falls in meat consumption in this country, I think, over the last decade of something like 10 15%. These are very real changes. But what you're calling for instead, rather than a cap, is a massive reduction. And I suppose where there is a difference between what you guys are arguing for and what I advocate for the automated electric communism is I'm saying, well, this is good, this is welcome that we have a sort of ceiling on the consumption of energy in the global north, and it certainly shouldn't go any higher. But but to start rationing it in that way, I find I find difficult 
I agree with you. I think we ultimately do, and we'll talk about this later on. I think we do need to move to vegetarianism. But something like aviation, you know, it's it's the bad guy in the story of global energy consumption. But it's only three percent of global energy consumption. Concrete is ten percent. You know, and I, I feel like people say, well, I haven't flown for 20 years. Well, okay, when was the last time you used a building with concrete in it is a more serious question. So the idea that you can opt out of that, I think, is is a difficult one. But I suppose where we can move to this uh, next is with nuclear energy. I, I think, for instance, 10, 20% of the baseload from nuclear over the next 30, 40, 50 years is quite plausible, probably quite wise. In many countries, that means keeping power stations open or, or just continue with a, with a sort of energy status quo. But you guys are very clear we need to get rid of nuclear energy. Can you explain your reasoning? Sure. Just to back up a little bit in terms of what should we demand of people, how should people live is the question, right? And I think the problem is that that people have in these discussions is it's not clear, like, what is, you know, if I give up plastic straws or, you know, I don't have plastic bags, you know, what does it do? What does it matter, right? Who, if I don't have a car or not, like, who cares, right? The, uh, so first, you know, the individual level of consumption is, is not good enough. But the question is, like, why is it not good enough? Is because one cannot see how it fits into the broader economy. So again, we are at Neuratian where we're saying, you know, what socialism is for us is the ability to see the whole economy and to collectively decide what kind of economic production do we want. And we are proposing one that is, you know, fairly modest in terms of living standards, at least from the point of view of the global north, um, because it allows us to achieve many other goals, right, such as uh, having more space to rewild and to achieve uh, uh, renewable energy goals faster and, and so forth. And I think, you know, when you say it's difficult to ask people to give up certain things, I think you're right. But I think it's also difficult to ask people to give up certain things out of context. So we're saying to people, okay, you know, do you want to have your big SUV, your big house? And again, I think, you know, energy consumption in the global north, especially in, in, in North America, is extremely high, right? As an even if it's capping out, it's at a very high level that I think, you know, it's impossible to imagine everyone having that kind of standard of living. It would just destroy the world, right? So then if you tell people, uh, you can either have these things, but you will have like a segregated society where you have haves and have nots, and you will cause a huge amount of da damage. It will require this much land, this much carbon, whatever per person. And we will like collectively decide that. Is that all right? Or will you say we can have society that won't have zoonotic disease, that won't have mass extinction, that will have equality, that will have renewable energy, but you have to give up certain things. You have to give up uh, meat, you have to give up, you know, your SUV, you have to give up your big house. And then is that fine? And I think those are the discussions we should be having. Can I just respond to that quickly? Because I suppose there's a difference here between a, a US or a Canadian and then a European audience. So in Britain, you know, I live in a terraced house. I, I don't have to turn on the heating upstairs because you're getting the heating from next door. People have quite small vehicles. I think we have a one litre car. You know, we, uh, we we don't live in London. If When we lived in London, we didn't have a car at all. We just used public transport. And so that, to me, is a very different world to saying, you know, big car, McMansion, SUVs, because for a North American audience, I mean, we see this just from the CO2 emissions, you know, the CO2 emissions of Canada, the US and actually Australia are about twice as high per head as the UK, for instance. The arguments you're making are the sort of, they're specifically pointed then towards a North American audience, because the, the numbers in reality in Europe are a little bit different. 
Yeah, well, that's why we were saying energy use in North America is like 12,000 watts. Energy use in Europe is about half that. But 6,000 watts is still three times higher than we think is, is either reasonable or fair on a global level. Like, you know, 6,000 watts is still way higher than the 2,000 watts. And how to get down from 6,000 watts to 2,000 watts is possible. And, you know, one's living standards would not decline too much from what you're saying. Yeah, as in you would live like... Uh, uh, in a, a bit of a hippie in uh, in 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 Europe, and these kind of you know, passive housing, you know, no car, you know, you don't you don't fly very much, or you know, take the train. I mean, and you don't eat meat. That will get you down to two thousand watts. But I would also say, you know, Britain can improve. I mean, they're notorious for having very drafty homes, and obviously retrofits are very important, and having more passive housing mandates. I mean, Belgium. Uh, or at least Brussels has passed like a housing house mandate. Like a lot more can be done, and again, uh, yeah, transportation and and uh, a diet are huge parts of these equations that are left out. So you're definitely right. You know, Canadians and Americans are the worst in this regard, um, but everyone can can improve. So so let's stick to nuclear power then for a second. Um, you you guys don't really see a a place for it, which I suppose, you know, explains your sort of your broader vision about, you know, ultimately forms of energy rationing. I suppose some people out there say, yes, we need to decarbonize ultra quickly. Yep, let's rewild half the planet, but actually we can keep energy consumption at present levels because nuclear power stations, why are they wrong? I don't think either of us are rushing to close nuclear power plants, although Troy, you can feel free to speak up. <laughs> I think the point is more that we're reacting to a particular set of proposals um, from some uh, environmentalists to build very large numbers of new nuclear plants, um, like this a massive push to build large numbers of new plants, maybe based on new technologies like smaller cores or something like this. And this we find problematic in, in several ways. Um, that, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about a little bit more, which is, you know, there's things like, you know, uranium quality, refining costs as you consume more of it might actually lead to more carbon emissions. Um, you know, one thing that's in the news recently is um, nuclear power has always been connected a little bit to the military and to nuclear weapons. And that's another form of existential threat that is is one that we should we should worry about. Um, and uh, the other point we made is that the in terms of a coalition, um, coalition building, I guess this is where uh, we make a little bit more of a populist argument, even though a lot of other parts of the book are not super populist, is that you can cohere a pretty big uh, coalition against nuclear power. It's the most popular environmental move. Um, uh, whereas the big push to build lots of new nuclear power stations, seems that seems like a, the sort of modeler's fantasy in the same way that the BEX is. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to jump in on that, Troy. Well, again, like the scale of building out is just preposterous to actually make any kind of dent in, in energy use or energy production. I mean, Hansen, you know, the famous climate campaigner talks about building 115 new reactors for the next like 30 years to increase the number of current of, of current nuclear energy production by tenfold. Uh, so building a, a new reactor every few days. And I mean, it's much we found it very hard to build reactors because of NIMBYs and because it's expensive. And these are all, so we can't really, I think, depend on that kind of rollout, nor should we want to build that many reactors that quickly. And it would be very dangerous, which leads to the next problem, which is the yeah, nuclear 
plants are still dangerous, right? I mean, the, the odds of a, a Chernobyl or Fukushima uh, level disaster is about 50% over the next 30 years. I have to check my footnote, but it's, it's still, it's not nothing. And if you increase the number of reactors tenfold, you can imagine the odds of a, uh, another disaster being much higher. And again, with Fukushima, things could have been quite, you know, could have been worse, could have been quite bad. I mean, they almost had to evacuate Tokyo. Uh, had it gone on much longer before they flooded the reactor. So, I mean, this is, and even then, it's going to cost like $800 billion and take 40 years to clean up. Like, it's just crazy. Like, this is not a safe, practical um, technology. And the fact is, if you build that many reactors, you're actually going to run out of uranium very quickly, which is why they were developing other kinds of nuclear technology, such as thorium and breeder reactors. In fact, breeder reactors are going to save us, apparently, according to all these nuclear advocates like Hansen or Monbiot or Schellenberger and all that. But we've had breeder reactors for a long time. They simply don't work because their coolant combusts with air, so they're always on fire, right? I mean, these, is, these breeder reactors, they spend 90% of the time down for repairs. I mean, this is not, we cannot depend on this technology and it is simply much easier to rely on re renewables. But again, with renewables, we have to face other problems, such as land use and such as uh, it being variable and so forth. But uh, nuclear is not the, the solution. And as Drew's saying, uh, the nuclear uh, question is the only way environmentalists have been able to cohere large majorities uh, of the population. That's the only thing that wins referendums for. Uh, for environmentalists. So to actually get to a kind of betray the, this environmentalist you know, heritage and to make some kind of elite pact just seems incredibly foolish. One thing I really like in the book is the engagement with the history of ideas, um, which wasn't expected uh, given the subject matter. And your claim is that environmental thought can be categorized into sort of three lineages, uh, Hegelian Prometheanism, Malthusianism, and Generite ecological skepticism. Uh, can you briefly explain these different perspectives and thinkers? Well, as an eco-socialist, I have some problems with that tradition, you know, the tradition that I belong to, because I think but many eco-socialists, they want to ignore the Promethean heritage of Marx. They want to say, no, you know, Marx cares about nature, he cares about soil fertility and, and all this, and therefore, uh, you know, all of all like the the kind of orthodox Marxist position of like we'll have to move mountains and totally remake the earth and you know uh, just melt the Arctic ice and just do all these kind of crazy schemes that you find from Trotskyists or from you know, socialist thinkers in the Soviet Union. Um, you know that's not part of the tradition. Instead, we have a nice eco eco Marx. I was never quite satisfied with that. And what the book does is, and again, with this kind of very Hayekian move, because Hayek was faced with the same problem in the 1930s where laissez-faire liberalism just seemed to have totally failed. Like No one believed in it anymore. The Great Depression proved that it was wrong, that it didn't work. And instead of just trying to ignore that or trying to just avoid the problem of liberalism, he created a new form of neoliberalism, which is founded on, on the... Uh, ability of markets to produce information being better than any other human institution. And from that insight, he built neoliberalism, which is quite different from the liberalism of Adam Smith. And I was thinking about what does socialism look like in an age of ecological collapse, right? 
what should be a socialist relationship to nature? And uh, and that goes back to the question of with, with Marx, and I think the Marxist uh, utopia uh, is the, you know, the realm of freedom where we have complete uh, control over nature and that gives us complete abundance that will allow us to be better humans because we won't have to worry about greed or jealousy or uh, laziness or anything else because we will have taken everything from nature. And I think if you believe in problems of scarcity, as we do in our book, then socialism has to be different. So to, to get back to your question, um, we have three traditions. One derived from Hegel, which is um, which you know, we, you know, the Promethean kind of tradition where Hegel is arguing that humans exist uh, alienated from nature, as in we see nature as this, this oppressive other, and therefore we have to reconcile our nature, uh, ourselves to nature by mixing nature with our consciousness through labor. And by totally remaking the earth, we see human consciousness uh, objectified in nature by turning a river into a canal or whatever it is, and therefore we will be harmonious with it. And that is the, the Hegelian, Promethean, you know, Marxist tradition. And ironically, um, you know, we say in the book that by doing, by remaking nature, you're opening up uh, ecological systems and, and disrupting them and, and, and balancing them, and that is dangerous in terms of disease. And that actually is a, you know, a major reason why we have new diseases and, and, and we should not think of diseases as like a timeless thing, but a historical phenomenon that emerges from humans disrupting uh, these natural systems. And Hegel himself was killed by cholera, which was a new disease that emerged from unbalancing uh, ecological systems in South Asia. So there's that irony. The second thing um, would be Malthus, uh, and Malthus sees the problem as one of population, as in people are like plants and animals, where they're always are trying to expand their population, and that will and that must be controlled by famine and by violence, and that will reduce population back to the carrying capacity. And this is the main um, the main uh, line in environmental thought. I think if you will kind of scratch most environmentalists, you find a Malthusian. And that manifests itself in different ways. I mean, Malthus wasn't very nice to the English poor. I mean, he was quite happy to let them starve and didn't want things like the poor laws and all that, or any kind of help to the English working class because he thought that would just expand the population and make the problem worse. Uh, but he actually was quite um, upset about the genocide of indigenous people in North America. So it, it is a, a, a strange legacy, which we can get more into, but um, I think, he saw, again, population as the problem. And then the third is, is Jenner, um, who invented the vaccine. He invented the smallpox vaccine. And what is interesting, interesting about him is that in his um, report on his experiments, he notices that um, you know, we have unnaturally taken control of uh, many different species, and that is the root of disease, like our control of, of pets, of farm animals, and so forth. And uh, we extend that insight to say that to can try to control other animals, you know, we are putting ourselves in danger. And the fact that we cannot fully uh, foresee how disease will emerge means that we should not try to dominate nature. So, um, and therefore, when, when, and this is an important part of the book, because we cannot fully understand nature, 
which goes against the Hegelian point of view, then we must try to uh, to leave nature as it is. Now I'll wrap up real quick. <laughs> Sorry, uh, and I, I just want to point out all of these three ideas emerged in 1798, which is which is unusual. What you say about disease and its kind of historical contingency, obviously, we just presume it's this eternal feature of the human condition. I mean, it's so powerful. I was familiar with it before, of course, but when, when you lay it out in the book, it is just amazing. So I just want to go over this. Um, of course, look, Neolithic Revolution, 12,000 years ago, we start to sort of do quote-unquote modern agriculture. Humans are around 300,000 years old. So this is quite recent. And here's the legacy of those 12,000 years. We get measles from cattle 7,000 years ago. We get influenza, probably from waterfowl, 4,500 years ago. Smallpox, probably 4,000 years ago. And as you've already said, cholera in the 1760s. Then, of course, more recently, you've got HIV AIDS in the 1960s, Ebola, uh, various coronaviruses, and notably COVID-19 in the last several years. Uh, your response to that, and I think a perfectly wise one, and I think this will become an increasingly mainstream argument in in the next several years is that we effectively need to end animal husbandry uh, and the eating of meat before we probe that question though i just wanted to ask normally the people that make that point and point to the limits and the the downside of the neolithic revolution they're normally anarcho-primitivists and i sort of just wanted to know from you two obviously you're outlining a very different vision so why are you not anarcho-primitivists given Given the observations you're making and given the, the very clear downsides of, of human agriculture, um, purely from an epidemiological point of view, where do you dif- differ from somebody like a John Zerzan? Yeah, I think uh, this is a great question. I think part of it, it's an interesting book because we do love technology and we love, I guess, our cosmopolitan world uh, and our you know connections and this modern world that we've inherited. There's so many wonderful aspects of it. And what we kind of want is to take that world, the foundations there and transform it and and make it reach its its full potential and simultaneously reconcile it with a healthy amount of exploitation of the biosphere and of nature. So this is, I guess, very following a very Marxist line of thought, which is that, you know, capitalism, modernity has created a world that is no longer able to fully work it. And so we kind of I guess we take that that general line of thought and make it more eco-socialist, I guess is the basic idea. So we do walk a strange line between um, skepticism of techni- certain forms of technical solutions, certain forms of even very old aspects of humanity. Um, but we do want to kind of build on what has been achieved, I guess. Troy, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think we're still socialists. Like we're not, we're not conservatives. And I think to be such like a like a deep ecology kind of um, uh, thinker to actually really want to go back to a hunter gathering uh, way of life. I mean, it's just preposterous. I mean, I don't know anything about how to survive in a forest, and and I think also we can't support eight billion people living like that. That wasn't the human population you know, 300,000 years ago, it was only like a, a million or a couple million. So uh, I think it's impossible. But the thing is also in terms of, 
how does one kind of criticize this Neolithic revolution while uh, not being a primitivist? I mean, I would just point out that you had very complex agricultural societies in the new world with very little animal domestication, right? Uh, and that is why when Europeans came over, you know, Europeans who had quite a few animals they relied on uh, and they were just full of disease. That's why they wiped out people in, in the new world. Right. And that was uh, because, uh, you know, Aztecs and, and the Incan uh, Empire and all that, they didn't have uh, lots of animals. So they didn't have lots of disease, but he still had very sophisticated societies that were quite healthy and uh, produce very you know, yeah, sophisticated culture. So I think this is not, you don't have to have animals, right, to, to have a civilization. You write how capitalism marks a break with humanity's relationship to nature, which has been one of attempted mastery for many millennia. Can you explain? Because, you know, on the one hand, you're saying that there's this big shift with agriculture and sort of our relationship to animal husbandry 12,000 years ago. And on the other, you're saying that it's obviously this big shift with capitalism. And, you know, we can talk about whether that's um, companies being listed on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange or the Genoese Empire or Victorian sort of industrial capitalism, but whatever, that's several hundred years old. So can you just sort of eke that out a little bit? What, what, what fundamentally changes in our relationship to nature with capitalism? Um, what, what changes is, I think... It's quite a lot, and you can see that in terms of zoonotic disease, right? So you did have you know, small numbers of people, small numbers of animals, and diseases would emerge and you know, cause plagues of different kinds. Uh, and that would be every few hundred or a thousand years, right? And then you had this, this moment in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where you have a lot of vaccines emerge and... Uh, um, antibiotics and so forth. And it seemed like a moment when we would actually manage our relationship to nature. And, and then it's kind of like the strange modern moment when uh, epidemiologists were telling students like it's probably nothing for you to study once you're actually done school because we're very close to curing all diseases and all that. And you would find the sentiment quite, quite, you know, uh, quite widespread in the 50s and 60s. And then suddenly in the 70s, you have this, uh, this reemergence of disease, right? Where you have Ebola, you have AIDS. I mean, then we have avian flu and, and SARS and then you know, SARS-CoV-2 and all that. And my point is suddenly there's this compression and, and you have many diseases emerging within years of each other. I mean, this is just this, this, I think, just tells you to what degree capitalism has become global, to what degree capitalism is, like how large the economy is relative to the natural world and how much that has changed over the last 50 years. Uh, and that's where we are leading and going into a world of probably constant disease generation, right? And uh, this, this tells you, I think, um, a bit about our relationship between nature, uh, humanity, and capitalism, where uh, capital is trying to, to change the world and turn the living world into dead commodities. And that, uh, that process is not managed by people directly, but is managed by people acting as agents of, of capital. And this is where we are quite typically Marxist. I mean, we're talking about capital being this automatic subject, and this is where one can also draw on the Hegelian interpretation where in previous societies, 
you have a master-slave relationship where slaves or you know, working class or serfs are, are changing the natural world uh, to fit the conscious designs of the, of the uh, elite. And then with uh, capitalism, it's a weird society where capitalists are not the masters, right? It is capital that is the master. So capitalists, too, have little control over the direction the society takes. And that's why we can be completely aware that we are in an environmental crisis, that, you know, say, having uh, deforestation or gigantic pig farms or, and all, the, uh, all these kind of things are, are going to ruin the climate and cause disease, but we seem unable to stop it. Right. And that is the, the big distinction, the acceleration of this relationship um, and also the fact that it is uncontrolled by us. Yeah, I find it interesting when people say, oh, wow, imagine if there was an AI which was sort of guiding society and its impulses and its outcomes. And it's like, well, we already we already have that. You know, it's it's called capital. We, we call it market logic. You know, it's nothing new. Uh, and and I, I do think there's probably going to be overlap with people who fundamentally disagree with in the next 10, 15, 20 years, where we are going to see, I, I think, political elites start to talk about zoonotic crossover and constant contagion and meat consumption as national security issues. Um, and, I, you know, we're, we're not there yet. I don't think COVID-19 has done it. But you're beginning to see the outlines of that. And I, I think it's one of those things where right now it's nowhere, but it's going to become mainstream very quickly. Even if you like your quarter pounder and you don't, you know, give a toss about animal rights, this is going to be a problem if we've got constant pathogens entering our species every, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, speaking of meat, why do you guys not talk about lab-grown meat in the book? I'm, I'm kind of surprised. We do have a bit of a gamble in the book that people will, even if various aspects of what we're asking people to give up on their own, like if you're asking this one to just stop doing something, that's not a very compelling ask. But if you have a, a package, which is, you know, give up X, Y, and Z, you get, you know, A, B, C, you get safety from pandemics, you get a stable biosphere, you get uh, a livable climate, you don't have to use radical untested technologies like geoengineering or unreliable like monitoring and then like rapidly producing vaccines for a new zoonotic disease, like the sort of reactive elements, which we may not be as lucky for the next big pandemic, you know, as we did with this one. Um, so yeah, I think the bet uh, that we're making is that actually, yeah, um, that this set the suite of this total plan, this this new vision will have, you know, the good and then have the sacrifices. But people are willing to make sacrifices if it's for a reason. Um, and it's like linked, you know, in this clear way. So solidarity is a very powerful force. To the lab-grown meat question, um, we mentioned it briefly in the introduction as uh, basically like markets producing more lab-grown meat, you know, and maybe there's some adoption. But uh, in this scenario, we imagine in the introduction, this sort of, I guess, grim future uh, where there's some moderate successes in environmentalism, but not enough. You have some lab-grown meat take up maybe 10%, you know, from like basically zero. Uh, but um, it's still you have more meat consumed because there's just a growing global economy. Um, I think, uh, I personally think, you know, things like lab grown meat or things like, you know, the beyond burger, like fake meat, that's not lab grown, uh, are, are great and good ways to get people into a plant-based lifestyle. I think personally, um, uh, there's a, there's a benefit to like, I guess, breaking out of 
a certain previous logic, you know, like uh, in the same way that uh, by having this reimagining of society, maybe reimagining your meal, reimagining your plate uh, to like center, you know, the delicious taste of your vegetables is good. But I, that's just a personal aesthetic preference. I don't think it's a requirement, certainly. Um, I think veganism without lab-grown meat can be delicious and fulfilling and joyful. But uh, I mean, I think if it helps people get over to the plant-based side, I'm, I'm all for it. I don't know what you think, Troy. I think you're more of a skeptic. Yeah. I mean, Aaron, I'm sure you saw that report that came out a couple of months ago and it was saying it's not clear if the cost will ever get down to like two bucks a pound and all that. Like it might, it might happen, but it might not happen. And I'm curious what you think about that. But I suppose, um, I think the problem is not technical. Okay. Let's say we do get down to that, that magic number. Um, I don't think people are going to necessarily give up meat if there is this this other option, and I because I, uh, or at least they won't give it up in enough numbers. And I think we have to address the problem, which is people eat meat uh, not just for the taste, uh, but for you know, reasons of gender and status, and that's that might not change given uh, lab meat. Right? People might, like those signifiers are important and maybe only killing an animal can show that. And I suppose we have to then, we have to approach the, the political problem is like at some point we have to ban meat. But as soon as you mention meat, which is, uh, you know, the animal, animal uh, livestock, you know, produces more um, CO2 emissions than the transportation sector does then that becomes like off limits, right? Like that's, that's too much and that's too personal and that cannot be politicized and uh, we shouldn't talk about that. And then, so I find that disjuncture strange, but the fact that, um, you know, if we're trying to solve the climate crisis, you know, we have to get rid of that 20% of emissions or so from, from the meat industry. And if we want to solve the extinction crisis, then we definitely have to get rid of the meat industry because that's the only place where we can get a huge amount of land. I mean, 40% of all inhabitable land is used for the meat industry. I mean, this is, this is the size of four Canada's. I mean, this is a huge area and it produces something that we don't need. Um, in terms of its actual weight, uh, in economic terms, it's only a couple percent of global GDP and has a huge cost. I mean, this is what's driving, yeah, the extinction crisis, but also what's causing new zoonotic disease to emerge. And, uh, this has to be part of the conversation as well. And especially if we want room for biofuels or for, uh, you know, solar panels and all that, we're going to deal with the question of land. And that's the easiest way to find more land. Troy is definitely the vegan ideologue. I am vegan personally. Um, I, I was before I, I met Troy. It's funny, the thing that made me go uh, give up meat finally, I'd kind of felt guilty about it for a while just from this kind of environmental perspective um, rather than the animal rights tradition was uh, reading about um, this just total lack of fish in many areas of the global south because trawlers from the uh, US and Europe had just totally decimated the fishing stocks. And I just felt that as my position as a wealthy member of the globe, that I just, as a gesture of goodwill, I guess, should get rid of it. That was my motivation. Um, I agree with Troy. It's an, if we are talking about, you know, getting rid of carbon emissions, you know, getting rid of the engine of the global economy, like banning it, 
then we should have be open to getting rid of something that is not the engine of the global economy. That is just, to me, a reasonable <laughs> thing to add. It should be less scary than getting rid of fossil fuels, you know? I, uh, can I add one, one thing real quick? I want to stress that, you know, getting rid of uh, the animal livestock industry is an important thing to do, but that has to be done in conjunction with you know, raising living standards in the global south and helping people and uh, to have respect for indigenous hunting and, and these other, you know, <laughs> many things we have to worry about. We should also care about ethics and why, you know, we should think about as socialists, why is it okay for people to eat animals and, and have uh, an argument for that. Personally, I don't think there could be an ethical basis for that. But I think these are things that socialists try not to think about. And, um, and we should put this, again, in conjunction with, with everything else. But we're not saying to just uh, deprive peasants of their, of their land and just leave them uh, penniless and, and all that. We're not arguing that. We're saying we need a good life for everyone and we can do that. But we have to give up certain things, uh, such as me. I mean, I, I'm entirely sympathetic to the argument. And I think there's no, there's no good reason to eat meat. Um, I think of all the things that we do presently, you know, if you were to say, well, what thing in 100, 200 years will will our descendants reflect on and say, wow, that was evil? I think contemporary um, meat production, um, I think, is probably the number one thing because they'll just say, well, it was so obvious. You know, wars have always happened. There's always been poverty and equality. But this was just, you know, the 20th and 21st centuries and, and how they did this was just, I think it will be anomalous and I think it will be, it will mortify people. That said, you know, I, I eat personally maybe chicken once a week, once a fortnight. Um, I could go vegetarian. I have been vegetarian. The problem for me is, this is going to sound very strange to our audience, you know, I, I get like IBS. You know, I love hummus, for instance, but if I eat too many pulses and legumes or if I eat too many fresh vegetables, I get like stomach cramps, stomach upset. And some people have told me, well, that's because, you know, you need to eat to it. It'll take six months or it'll take a year. Other people tell me, well, it's because you've got Middle Eastern heritage, high meat diet, so the enzymes aren't adapted. Who's right here, guys? You know, I, I, if I want to be vegan, you know, are there some people it just isn't going to sit with well? Or is that a nonsensical argument? I mean, one thing I would say is I think it's funny that we're talking about changing the whole world and changing uh you know, energy systems and building a new reactor every three days and all these gigantic projects depending on geoengineering. But then asking people to give up meat, that is like the much harder question, apparently. That should be the easiest thing. That should be the first thing people do. I mean, it should not be a conversation we're having in 20 years as we're slowly building up a consensus or something like that. We should be having that discussion now. We should be moving now to get rid of this industry because it's the easiest thing we can do. I mean, we can get rid of this next year if we wanted to. We're getting rid of fossil fuels within a year is impossible right without having a total economic collapse but the meat is easy as in for for what you know you can do personally you know i uh i've known uh vegetarians who did who were mostly vegan who uh uh suffered from from uh, gastrointestinal problems and there are ways around no but seriously you're right this no, is no i'm uh, the victim here i'm laughing at myself actually yeah. rather than cry it's easier this, this is this is not unusual i mean i know people like this and uh you, definitely i would recommend talking to a vegan nutritionist uh like someone who understands veganism because if you think you talk to 
someone who doesn't know much about it, they'll just tell you it's impossible, right? But there are ways to work around it. I can personally send you some good uh, reading material on this to find out what part of your diet uh, will work for you. And I was asked recently about this by another academic uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So I think that problem is much easier to solve than, you know, making fusion, right? That is the harder problem. Um, and we are not, luckily, we have, are not tigers, right? We're not like very intelligent tigers that have changed the world and are facing an ecological crisis. Like we, we're not obligate carnivores. We are more like squirrels. I mean, we can, <laughs> we're probably eating mostly roots and nuts and, and seeds and things like that before, naturally. And it, it is not difficult for us to be healthy and to live on plants. You know, we're talking about a post-carbon world. We're talking about a move from uh, from animal husbandry, localism. Uh, but, you know, as Marxists, we, we, of course, know that this would give rise to um, new conceptions of nature. We would want that, of course. You've already highlighted a lot of that. New mental conceptions, new social relations to one another. But I, I don't see why those would necessarily be progressive. And I think there's a the, the sort of big problem for your argument, for me anyway, is that to dismiss sort of left Prometheanism has a big downside, which is that that left Prometheanism is also bound up with radical democracy, civil liberties, the expansion of the idea of the value of the self over the last, say, 250, 300 years. And a post-carbon communitarian politics can look like the Handmaid's Tale, right? And so when people talk about, oh, you know, post-capitalism, I mean, this is a very wide set of outcomes we're referring to. So why, why do you not think that the sort of the economic base you're talking about, why do you not think it would lead to a radically different kind of sort of ideological superstructure? I'm thinking, you know, ancestor worship, uh, highly insular, anti-cosmopolitan, you know, projects, for instance. How do you respond to that? Yeah, we have a line in the book somewhere that um, socialism does not guarantee or the socialist economic system does not guarantee, you know, freedom or democracy. But it's sort of um, necessary to have this sort of democratic control over all aspects of our life. This sort of vision that we have of democracy controlling, you know, not only government, but economic decisions and fundamental decisions about our interchange with nature, like how much should we take from nature? Should we get rid of meat entirely? How much should we get rid of it? That sort of thing. These are big, important questions that we should talk about democratically. But you're certainly right that having a, uh, you know, a system where we have a post-capitalist economy that is managed, you know, as we imagine it by a democratically accountable bureaucracy of some kind, that certainly, you know, could go wrong. Uh, you are certainly right. Um, uh, and that is a danger. Um, that is a danger with basically democracy in general or, or expanding our conscious control over society. Like capitalism leaves a lot of things out of conscious control. Um, so it's a risk. It's a real risk. What you're proposing is such a huge shift. So, for instance, if you look at the shift from hunter-gatherer humankind to Neolithic revolution, we get from the basis of this new kind of society, the axial religions of, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, because, we, and we move away from animism and spirituality immersed in nature to the idea of, you know, monotheism. And uh, we talk about metaphors of 
a god which is you know a, a herder of sheep and so on that's not an accident but you're, you're saying well we're going to move away from the sort of th that neolithic world whole new relationships to nature and i feel like well you know what we probably would see a shift in human consciousness and social forms analogous to what we see with the rise of the axial faiths in the words of of carl jaspers am i sort of overthinking it you're probably right you know and this is where uh drew wrote the fictional chapter i think that is a work of our fiction and socialist fiction is to imagine what would life be like in such a society. I'm sure we would be totally different, right? Uh, I I would say, you know, what you're talking about, I mean, I think it's it's no accident that uh, Hegel came up with his idea of humanization of nature because he was working on like, what, like, where did uh, monotheism emerge from? Like he was studying Judaism and then the, and that, that is what... Um, uh, that is where he comes up with the basis of his philosophy. So I think you're, you're right to, to look and think about uh, religion and our relationship to nature and social forms and ask these questions and ask what a socialist version of that would look like. I mean, to answer that, I suppose another way is that I, I would say that socialism, as Drew's saying, is not a guarantee of freedom and not a guarantee of uh, human liberation, but it it'll, it creates the conditions where it is possible, where it is not possible under capitalism. And there is uh, the Afro-pessimist theorist, you know, Wilderson, and he writes about, you know, what will happen to, you know, black people after, like, what will happen to racism after the revolution. He compares that to the plight of animals, right? Like as in who will liberate the animal after the revolution. And I think you can definitely have socialism with misogyny, with racism, with uh, you know, oppression of animals. That is entirely possible. But I think that's the whole point of socialism that it allows us to govern ourselves. There's no automatic utopia, right? And the problem with capitalism, and this is similar to the problem of, I think, Prometheism, as you're, you're saying, that if we try to have a world that is completely commodified, it will end in disaster. If we try to have a world that is completely uh, humanized, whether by socialist or by a capitalist society, it would also end in disaster, right? That is where we are articulating a new basis for socialism, and that is based on basically two, two principles. One is capitalism is the automatic uh, expansion of the economy that will create uh, com uh, commodities, and therefore socialism must... Um, consciously control that interaction because socialism is the only thing that will allow us to control that interaction and we must control that interaction because we cannot fully understand that relationship so that's why socialism has to be eco-socialism and it has to be a socialism of scarcity that is that is the premise of the book uh, and the last part about you know the end and what does it look like we do make an argument for socialism representing the end of history for two Hegelian reasons. One is like the driver of history being the search for recognition amongst people. And we're saying once you have a society where everyone has a, a potential for the good life and everyone uh, is, is treated equally and can participate equally, that problem is solved. And the second problem is the humanization of nature. And if we decide to limit interaction with nature and stabilize the biosphere, that also represents an end to history. That does not mean we will agree on everything, right? There's plenty to disagree about still. But those two you know, goals represent a huge epochal achievement, as you're saying, I think, yeah, equivalent to the Neolithic uh, revolution.
I mean, I'd add one more thing, which is, you know, I spoke to Ben Bratton, what, maybe a year ago, um, and we were concentrating on his book, Return of the Real, and, you know, he talks about how the pandemic has given us a new prism by which to understand society, the epidemiological view of society, which is, I think, quite overtly a post-liberal, post-individualistic sort of methodology, which said, look, you can talk about personal liberty and your freedoms, but you are a vector of transmission for something which can kill somebody else, right? That's, and it, and it, and it, it, it offers, a, like I say, a way of understanding society in a, in a quite different way to, to what we're used to. I don't even say market economics. I think that's like, like you say, the, 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 the sort of the Hayekian neoliberal sort of view of society we, we, we get instead. And I do feel like with this book, it feels somewhat similar. You know, that idea of the epidemiological view of society is post-liberal and it's saying that individual preference is kind of secondary. And I know that these have been big, big sort of themes and ideas for socialists for, you know, at least 100 years, I think probably, well, since 1917, certainly. Is that something we need to move away from, that obsession with, you know, the individual? Because there's sort of two, there's two strains of this, isn't there? You sort of get sort of, Orwell post 19 look let's be real a lot of it's funded by the CIA you know Orwell post second world war you know socialism has to uphold the sanctity of the individual and you know it has to stop authoritarianism but then you have this other sort of worldview which says well look at our relationship to the biosphere look at climate change look at our relationship to epidemiological reality and that's 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 kind of inadequate you know just to conclude where, where do you guys sit on that yeah, I think we certainly, um, part of our goal in the third chapter of the book is to try and design a proposed blueprint for how you might govern a society that's worried about big things. Like, um, are we uh, supplying everyone with the raw materials necessary for a good life? Are we not trespassing any planetary boundaries? Are we kind of monitoring nature to see if there are warning signs? Are we monitoring society to see if there are any warning signs of us failing to meet our goals of protecting a stable biosphere and a healthy human society? Um, and we try and imagine this at some amount of length in a way that both like has to think on this big, big scale and then more local scales as well. Um, while not kind of taking on its own logic and dominating society and following its own path, like basically democratically constraining this um, large system. So I guess the argument is that um, democracy is really important and we really believe that is important, but we do remove the emphasis from the individual, certainly. I don't think we're super anti-individualist in the fourth kind of utopian fiction chapter of the book. We imagine that people even within one kind of voted upon plan can live in many, many different ways, even within the same sort of economic area. But those ways are ways that are not significant, I guess, in terms of what the goals of the plan are. So you can live in many different forms, but if you're living in a, have a heated pool out back in your backyard, then that would be a problem, I guess. And I think this kind of gets at why is Otto Neurath, who again is so important for us and so important for neoliberalism, right? Neoliberalism emerged as a conversation against Neurath in 1919 and 1920. And because he articulates this vision of socialism that is very clear in how, and articulates what, what the socialist principles of, uh, of society could be. 
uh, more clearly than other people. And instead, socialists have kind of, you know, they have ignored um, Neurath and opted instead for a market socialist perspective, which maintains as much of the market as possible. Um, you know, maintains the possibility for you know, individual choice in terms of products and, and how they want to live and all that. And I think Neuert is right to, to criticize market socialism because socialism has to be uh, decided collectively. How do we live is it always going to be a collective problem. And I think that may sound authoritarian or scary to many people, and I think it does have problems, but it also is the only way that we can solve these gigantic challenges that we're facing while also promising equality. But these are the kind of discussions that we need, and these discussions are uh, obscured when we focus on individual autonomy or, or socialist markets, I would say. Yeah, I mean, what brought it really home for me was, you know, you saw protests in this country by Insulate Britain a few months ago, and they were, you know, they were, they were stopping SUVs, and people were getting angry about it, and people were trying to drive into them and stuff. and. I would comment and I would get a bunch of response and DMs and messages from kids or whatever saying, oh, she can drive whatever she likes. And I'm thinking, well, she can't. Like, she can't. You know, we, we can't all eat and drink what we want. We can't all travel how we want because if we continue like that, we're, we're literally not going to have a habitable planet in a century or probably sooner. And like, I, I feel like it's such an alien thing to say to somebody in the 20th century. No, you can't do that. Sorry. There is this external constraint, which means that is prohibited. That is automatically viewed as that kind of Orwell-inspired lib liberal left as this is authoritarian. No, it's, it's necessary. And of course, like you say, that's a very permeable boundary, right? And, you know, I think Milton put it best, you know, necessity, the tyrant's plea. No, nobody who's ever done anything awful didn't say it was necessary. Uh... But, but it's something that I think, you know, the climate movement is, have to, is going to have to address. You know, anti-consumerism is one thing. Building a politics constructed around, you know, express prohibition of things is something quite different, actually. And I think it's quite a brave, it's quite a brave thing to do, as you, as you two have done, to, uh, to construct a whole politics around it. I think just the way we need to get rid of fossil fuels, we need to talk about meat the same, the same way. But I think you raised, yeah, again, a great point. And it reminds me, against my work... As a, as a scholar is on environmental economics and the history of environmental economics. And the problem is externality. Like how do you deal with externalities? And you know, Lionel Robbins, who was an important neoliberal, you know, writes in the early 30s, like the essential problem of economics is whether we can control the consumption of other people. Like how do other people live? It, it, whether that's okay or not is the, the question of economics. And I think with externalities, uh, it is acknowledging that and an individual or individual firm's actions affects everyone else. And what do we do with that? And like, do we, you know, tax them? Do we, you know, ban things? Do we create markets to cause harm? And then this, uh, and or do we try? Do we try to internalize uh, everything within a plan and then decide what kind of costs are we willing to deal with and who bears those costs and how do we compensate them? But that is done within. A plan. And I think that is the social solution to that problem. And I think avoiding that uh, is is cowardly at some level. And in some ways, again, because I work on neoliberals, neoliberals are extremely blunt about property, right? And they're extremely, uh, property, as they put it, is the right to harm others. And they, they, so the society has to determine what kinds of harms are allowed, right? Like how many harms should we have? 
And I think to be a naive neo, a naive liberal instead of a neoliberal is to pretend that those problems can be avoided or smoothed over. And uh, I think we need to have the other more difficult discussions about that. Building on what Troy said, uh, we have already a system of telling people what they can and can't do, and it's called money. Like I, on my stipend, cannot live in a house, or and I cannot have an SUV, and I cannot have a heated pool. Um, these things are very much baked into our society, and there are whole regions of the world where very large amounts of things that are foundational to thriving a, a successful life are forbidden on the basis of economics on on money. It's just obscured behind a layer of ideology a little bit of how things are functioning here. Like, um, you know, we see money as something earned or whatever, when it's really maybe permission slips from society to do stuff. Um, and uh, maybe socialism is uh, uh, this aspect of what we're proposing is, is maybe a bit surprising because we're just laying bare what is already a thing that all societies do, which is set boundaries on what can and cannot be done. It's just our boundary is not governed by something that's secretly doing that well that's a great place to end on gentlemen i really can't recommend it enough and i was i was struck by the wide-ranging literature i mean there's like 10 or 12 books off the back of it which i probably want to buy now which is definitely not good for me uh, and definitely not good for my bank balance but i mean I, I appreciate that too so uh best of luck i hope it does well it certainly deserves to thanks thanks so much for reading it and for inviting us on the show and yeah thanks so much for having us this was really fun broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.